Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, featuring 2nd Edition AD&D Players and DMs option books. In this marathon series, and it has been a marathon, we took a close look at a set of special books that are often considered D&D Edition 2.5, the precursor to 3rd Edition, according to my wonderful co-host. And on the 12th day of Edition Wars, on this final installment, my DM gave to me High-Level Campaigns Part 3, 12 Drummers Drumming the End of the Series. I am your host, Sam Dillon, and I am here with my friend and co-host, Brandis Stoddard. I mean, 12 Drummers is basically like a whole marching band, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, we could have a, to- a, a like a drum like a drum team like drum off. That would be awesome. I love drummers. Right. So, so twelve drummers and eleven pipers, and I mean, you could organize an army on that basis. That's that's crazy. Yeah. I, I yeah. just I have all kinds of questions about these gift givers. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> um, well, they must be loaded. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine like. that twelve drummers is cheap, and I can't imagine that uh, that uh, twenty two pipers are cheap, right? Twice, right. eleven pipers, twice, and uh, and you know, and thirty lords. I mean, I just, yeah, it's just not, yeah, this is well, this is trouble. <laughs> I mean, anyway, I mean, aristocrats are always for sale, Sam. That is true. You're 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 spot on. Yes, always available, never free. Mm-hmm. That's All right. right. <laughs> so that brings us to chapter five. Oh, God. Chapter five of High Level Campaigns, the DM Options book that the first 70 pages of it could be in the fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide. The chapter five cannot be in the fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide. <laughs> well, no. I wouldn't <laughs> mind seeing this topic revisited. But I don't want to use any element of this implementation. Not, not even one. Uh, I'm sorry to whoever wrote this chapter. I'm not going to be nice to you for a little while. You can <laughs> you can skip ahead. It's fine. It's probably better. Um, so look, the idea here is that uh, duels between spellcasters are this incredibly time honored part of the literature. Right, it's such a thing. Oh. Um, I mean, I'm listening to Apocrypals, uh, which is a, a wonderful podcast, uh, and it's. I, I just listened to the episode on Saint Patrick. Well, he gets into a spellcaster fight with a druid, and Chris Sims, God bless him, is going through the description of this fight. And figuring out which fifth edition spell is each character's action, and it works really well. He doesn't miss a miss a beat on this. Like it opens with control weather. Like it's yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, and so what that means is that you know throughout the Middle Ages, people are writing saints' lives to say nothing of. You know, modern supporting fantasy, but it's this it's this incredibly deep part of the supporting fiction of European medieval fantasy to have spellcasters throwing down and working miracles or or spells to mess with each other and to see who is the more powerful. Mm-hmm. And so th- this is trying to do that. But wait, so let's think about this from from a certain point of view. That makes total sense because remember, back at the whatever chapter, whatever book we were in, it talks about the demographics, right? The chapter one, it talks about demographics and it mentions that there's only one 18th level wizard for every million people on the sure, planet. Sure, yeah. And if you're if you're using the traditional you know, small population planet that we kind of assume, you know, that the, the, the world of D and D in, in, in 1974 did not have 8 billion people on it. Like the planet earth does in 2019, right? Like it didn't have that high of a population. So out of every 1 million people, 
you only get one 18th level wizard. Well, if that person is so powerful, there has to be a way for them to either get taken out or to know that they have a match, right? They, they have someone that could make, that could, that could match their power to keep them in check. And so it actually makes a lot of sense when you think about it that way, that people would love to see these wizards duel because they're rare and you have to know that there's somebody there that could kick your ass. Right. And it's also be nice if their world-shaking power were constrained to murdering each other rather than Rather than messing with the small folk. <laughs> right. Or rather than literally just kicking over the kingdom in a, you know. In a fit of rage. It's basically a massive yeah. superhero fight. Right. Like, yes. You thought the Battle of New York was bad in Avengers. What's up? <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, but but so while the, while the theory and the concept is great, the idea is great, what is your issue with this then? Well, um this is two people standing in in a line with each other, um, having their spells slowly move toward one another. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the spells sort of migrate toward the enemy, and maybe something interferes with them, and maybe it doesn't. And there's tons and tons of tables and things to look up. And there's even a fantastic... Uh, I say that tongue in cheek. Fantastic illustration of spell movement as the spells are slowly moving across across the combat arena from one wizard to another. They've got little minis and they've got this straight line of of cards to show the spell effect moving. And what happens at the end of round one? Where is it at the end of round two? And it greatly illustrates exactly what their what the idea is. Yes, it does but, do that. <laughs> but oh, but it doesn't carry the narrative of the thing, and it just doesn't sell its idea really at all. But uh, I don't know. I think that. I think that it's trying to create – it's trying to really lean into play and counterplay. And I appreciate mm-hmm. that their spellcasters are trying to be about counterplay. That is cool all by itself. That is a cool idea. But when you need a a new effect for so many spells, so many spells. Uh, right. Just I mean, to pages explain, and pages yeah, and pages, yeah, pages of spells. Yeah, yeah, tons and tons. Um, just to explain how they would function in this whole dual dynamic, that that's a warning sign. That's a, a to a designer that should be a warning sign. Well, basically, look, the, what this is is it's a mini game. It's it's a, it's a game removed from the actual D and D scenario. And if it's just one player showing up to play against a very well prepared DM in a duel, mm-hmm. or if it's two right. PCs who've chosen to duel each other. Right, with a, with a referee. With a referee. Th- then okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. But that's what I mean. That's what this is suited for. If you're using up table time, oh, oh God, no. Right. Like This is just a wildly more complicated way to spend most of a session trying to figure out what you can and should do. Because right. it's so involved to just understand the effects that even spells you're very familiar with are going to have. Mm-hmm. For for example, reincarnate. This spell counters any spell that inflicts damage. Well, that's not at all related to right <laughs> the reincarnate spell that's that you're used to casting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the same for raise dead. But like, I get why it does that. It's a negation of harm. Sure, fine. Right. Just yeah. No, I get it. But the fact of the matter is, there's what? Uh, let's see. What five, six pages in here of individual spells, special abilities. Yeah. Yeah. With j- just telling you what the spell actually does now when you're in a duel, which you know, if you've spent a, a, a campaign that's brought you up to 18th level, learning your spells 
and what they do to opponents in the regular campaign, man, this is a heavy burden. Yep. Uh, to suddenly learn different different uses, right? I mean, I it just yeah, it it, it just um it really is a, a mini game. It's a game all into itself, and it doesn't necessarily belong in anyone's campaign. And right, and and I think it that's that's my last word on it. Really, actually, <laughs> uh, I, I feel like it might even be something of a stretch to say that it feels like D anD D to an even greater degree than the dueling rules in combat and tactics, which, mm-hmm. to be clear, don't feel very much like D anD D. Yeah, we made fun of those too. <laughs> uh, we weren't we weren't kind to them, you know. Several 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 episodes ago, yeah. Um, I, but like you know. Like you said, it really does have a basis in the literature, and it has a basis in the idea of, you know, there needs to be a way to check the power of an 18th level wizard, because that person, let's face it, is really, really powerful. Like, what I think you are most looking for when you have two spellcasters just throw down in a dual situation rather than well it's a big battle all everyone's throwing down but in a dual situation i think what you want to feel is something a lot more like um when morpheus goes to hell in sandman and he gets into a creativity duel with one of the devils there right and they go through creative shape-shifting well that's the feel you're looking for right and this is which works give it to in you. literature. It, it, it works in <laughs> literature, and it can work in freeform role play to some extent. Um, I, I don't personally have a lot of experience with making it work. Uh, my wife, who has more experience with freeform role play in general, does. She says it. She's made it work fine. It's just. Oof. Um, but the thing is, like, so, but you just you just introduced a very specific restriction right like most players who are playing D, and i this is completely anecdotal it's not like i really have data but i would i would venture to say most players who are playing D, most of them don't play a lot of free form role play right yeah like i most people that i know that play D, when i try to suggest a game like say fiasco which is a wonderful game but it's a lot of free freer form I wouldn't say wholly freeform, but it has a lot of freer mechanics. Sure. Than what D and D and D is in no way, almost no way, like Fiasco, or I should say, Fiasco is in almost no way like D and D. Other than that, they both use dice, although in very different ways, and they both require role playing. That is, players, people who are playing the game, to act as other people. Sure. I mean, but that's so broad, right? They are very far apart on the RPG spectrum. If you were to graph everything, right, they're really far apart. Um, and most D and D players I know, they don't actually, they don't, they're not interested in something like Fiasco. So when you're talking about, well, this might work in a more free form, well, you know, the idea of spell du- of, of you know, spellcaster duels, anyway. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah, but. Yeah. Anyway, I think we could probably move on. I, I, I think, we, think our I, I think our thoughts about this are probably pretty clear now. <laughs> um, now, now, chapter six is some some interesting stuff that isn't currently supported in any context mm-hmm. at all in fifth edition. But right. uh, this chapter, in a very real way, uh, becomes you know, the better part of a whole book in third ed. Mm-hmm. Because this chapter is chapter six, True Dwemers, and this is going to be the epic level handbook. Right. This is how to how to create spells beyond the levels that you're you've been privy to so it, far. It, spells beyond ninth level is the the chapter subheader, like the very first one right there, and we're off to the races. And while a lot of the the math side stuff gets changed around. I want to say that a lot of the fundamental scaffolding is pretty similar. It's pretty unchanged. Well, I think what hap- what happens is right at the beginning here it 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 basically gives a description of the major types of high-level powers 
that, you know, what types of forces and powers you can create using the different schools of magic. So, for example, abjuration has banish under it. And banishing, and it goes into uh, talking about what banishing does, and it gives three or four paragraphs on that. And then it talks about dispel and three or four paragraphs on that. And then it talks about reflecting. Um, And those are sort of almost categories of action, right? Uh, If you're talking about what a spell can do, does it banish? Does it dispel? Does it reflect? Does it create a ward? Those are all abjuration type effects. And actually, when it talks about these things, it's a pretty good just general description of, hey, here's what this type of spell would do. Regardless of level, regardless of any specifics, we're not talking about what we're banishing or or what affliction we're creating or what we're transforming. We're just talking about what that actually means from a perspective of, well, if you, ca- if you want to create a spell that's going to transform, what does that mean? And it actually is, is good information just if you're not even talking about 10th level spells or 11th level spells or how, whatever – reading you want to give them, actually just knowing, well, what does it mean to actually banish something? What does it mean to ward something? What does it mean to fortify? Like, uh, you know, that's uh, that's sort of a more general description, and I, I think that's applicable to a lot of different things. Okay, so what I did was I um, cracked open my Epic Level Handbook, as one does, and if you look at, um, if you compare Table 28 True Drummers to Table uh, Two one epic seeds. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not one to one, so so I'm not trying to say that it is, but it's not that far off. There, the, the Venn diagram is uh, very very friendly up in this piece, right? Um, <laughs> so things have been moved from one school to another a little bit. For example, the afflict seed in the Epic Level Handbook is enchantment compulsion. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas here it's uh, conjuration, conjuration summoning. summoning. Well, okay, but it, you get a lot of that kind of kind of concept, um, mm-hmm. and and like a lot of the words are the same. I I think there's not a lot of way to see those similarities and not think that the writers of the Epic Level Handbook were keenly aware of. Uh, DM's option high-level campaigns. Um, sure. I think that's an extremely fair statement to make. Uh, even if, in fact, uh, the uh, names credited for design don't have specific overlap, um, that that barely, that, that probably barely means anything. But <laughs> you know, what do I know? What do I know? Um, so, so, yeah. Um, the idea is that you're going to take all of these spell concepts, these spell fundamentals, and uh, build those up in different ways. And I mean, this is some wild stuff if you are (laughs) familiar really only with, okay, this is D&D. I have one spell. It does one thing. I can't Mm -hmm. go like mess with the parameters I don't customize parameters on my spells. I go to a new published book and find a new spell that does something <laughs> closer to what I want with different right. parameters. Right. This is, uh, okay, here's a base spell difficulty, and here's what you get for the base spell difficulty, and then you can crank that up really quite far. Mm-hmm. And Epic Level Handbook works much the same. Uh, very, very similar... Uh, fundamental ideas with also linking things together more. But uh, I mean, I also don't think I'm venturing into uh, especially risky territory to say this smells a lot like Ars Magica to me. This, this is very (laughs) much in, in the uh, vein of Ars Magica, except that that, has its sort of uh, uh, verb noun system, and this right is that it has its own its own sort of magical setup. Right, this doesn't yeah. do that, but you just crank more and more power into it to get different effects. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, that's right. a thing. Um, 
And so then you have your difficulties for durations and, and all of this. And so the idea is you, you might wind up with some, some very high difficulties and then do things to chop those, whether you're talking about adding in exotic material components or uh, exotic special conditions. Remember all that conditional casting we saw in Spells and Magic? Well, <laughs> it's back, but now for your epic level casting, right? Right. Um, and, and so this is very, very table intensive um, because, I mean, of course it is. I, I've played Mage the Awakening with uh, all of its spell factors. Uh, if you want to improvise a new spell, um, I've read, if not ever successfully actually scheduled, Ars Magica. It, like, <laughs> it, it's very much in the vein of how those work with a lot of mm-hmm. elements to consider about each spell. And, right, right. Uh, you know, it, this is, is a lot to, to ask of someone to do like, during a session. But if you, mm-hmm. if you, if you're playing a, a spellcaster who can do this kind of thing and you're wanting to do this in the course of a session, it does not step outside the, the bounds of fairness to me to ask the player to come very well prepared with, the kind of thing they want to do, right? Right, um, right. And in fairness, at this level, the game also expects the party's fighters to be spending at least a little table time on you know, managing their, their keeps and manners and so on, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Right, right. Let's see. Um, I don't know that there are any uh, copied true dwemers. I think all of the, uh, the true dwemers are just completely new um, between this and the, the epic spells of uh, epic level handbook. And so that's kind of interesting too, but um, I've always been a, a huge fan of the, you know, just whole aesthetic of the epic level handbooks spells. They're just bananas and so much fun. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that these are bananas enough for that. I actually would say that's my problem with them. They're they're kind of uh, too tame. They're not bananas. They're uh, you know Nejaz Nejaz Toadstool, a vengeful wizard, is reputed to have favored this spell to teach people who insulted her a lesson. If the saving throw fails, the victim becomes a small toadstool. I mean that's that's fine. This is rare because the result is always a toadstool. Um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like uh, that's, that's what a person spent all this time and energy on. Right. Right. As compared to the Epic level handbook, which I happen to still have open in front of me right? with the vengeful gaze of God. I mean, yes. Right. <laughs> Let's go. That, yeah. That's what we're talking about. Right. Um, and you know, some of these, it's way off topic and I am sorry, not sorry. Um, but I, I, Really couldn't walk away from this without mentioning Nailed to the Sky, which I have always loved. And um, oh yeah, I, one of my dear friends would never forgive me if I didn't mention this one, Demise Unseen. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. That is that is the best spell. And what does it do? For, for our audience's sake, you got to tell us what those do. <laughs> oh, 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 right. I, I, sh- I should do that. Um uh, you instantly slay a single target and at the same moment animate the body so that it appears that nothing <laughs> has happened to the creature. Yeah, that's excellent. <laughs> so you zap them as if with a disintegration mm-hmm. ray or something. Oh, no, it didn't work. My bad. No, no, they're actually dead. No, none dead under your control. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, that's uh, so different from let me turn you into a toadstool for 24 hours. <laughs> um. Yes. Yes, it, it rather is. So let's move on then to uh, Chapter 7. Chapter 7. Uh, chapter 7 is also the Epic Level Handbook. Yes. <laughs> just, just a different chapter. Character stuff, yeah. It's just, I think, the chapter before the Epic Level Spells. Um, yeah. So Chapter 7 of um, High Level Campaigns is very, very much Chapter 1 of the Epic Level Handbook. Mm-hmm. It's it's very on the nose um, in in that sense, but this is a chapter I've been looking forward to for as long as we've been even planning this series, because this chapter is kind of 
a closing argument for uh, the player's option and DM's option books being the precursor to third edition. In which I mentioned in the introduction that that's your that's your thesis that you have been maintaining. I, I've been I've been trying to trying to argue this uh, this thesis uh, for for a nice long time. There've been a few other sort of subtopics and theses along the way, but uh, this is this is the one I'm really here for, and I think that this book being the first as far as I know, textual appearance of evasion as uh, if you succeed your dexterity saving throw, uh, you take no effect instead of half effect. All right, so so evasion, right? Rogues with this skill can avoid damage from energy discharges such as breath weapons, fireball spells, and the like through a combination of superior reflexes and inner strength. The, character, the rogue rolls a normal saving throw versus the effect and suffers no damage if it is successful. There you go. There's no concept of concept of a dexterity saving throw, but it gives you the things that are later going to become dexterity saving throws and calls it good. You can. Uh, and so here you have to be a rogue of uh, 16th level or higher to uh, even think about taking this, which is super funny because in the next edition, it's going to be a second level rogue ability. Second level <laughs> and it's going to be the best reason anyone's ever heard to splash two levels of rogue onto literally anything anything yeah i was gonna say anything yes but what this what this whole chapter has is you know first progression tables for what happens with your saving throws mm-hmm. uh, what happens with um of saving throw penalties that you impose upon enemies. Since you're since there's no concept of a DC that improves, you've instead got to impose a penalty so that your opponents, whose fixed saving throw numbers are also improving, could possibly fail something. Right, right. Um, and then you've got, you know, best possible Thaco limits um, on, on table 39. Anyway... Uh, table 40, skills for high-level characters. As I've been saying for almost the entire run of Edition Wars, <laughs> not just uh, the 12 Days of Edition Wars, um, second ed non-weapon proficiencies are just feats. Yeah. Yep. They're just feats. And this is absolutely what's at stake here. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these things are going to get sort of readapted and reimagined into actual third ed feats and some of them are going to become class abilities as evasion did and so on right they get folded into the uh the classes or an opportunity to take a feat at some point right almost every single one of these if not every single one of them they change the names of some of them but basically it's all of this is but you know and that's 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 that thing, you know. This, <laughs> I think, this book maybe was was used uh, extensively, or at least reviewed extensively when third edition was being produced. I, I definitely think that they were, at minimum, coming from a play environment where this was uh, an accepted part of the reality, mm-hmm. and not, you know, an unfamiliar book. Right. Um, I mean, there's a priest feat called Smite. Um, it's actually destructive wave, and that's funny. <laughs> it's destructive wave with a bunch of different possible carrier effects, right? Because it is a cone. Anyway, uh, there's all kinds of all kinds of stuff going on here, um, and a lot of what we're seeing is just that, like the the second ed late game didn't offer a lot of new stuff, not for. Well, it offered some stuff for spellcasters, obviously. They're getting their high-level spells. But especially for warriors and rogues, mm-hmm. uh, well, I'm a, I have a little bit more of what I had before. Yep. And I'm a little bit better at some stuff. You well, know, not, not a lot better, just, just a little bit. <laughs> and this just goes on and on. Well, they're introducing whole new mechanics here mm-hmm. that are going to... Uh, influence all of this stuff like priests operate on an eminence skill 
the score of which you know goes down over the course of the day as they do stuff it's 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 a like currency pool except that it's also their skill score <laughs> to see if they succeed right so so it's a little bit death spirally it's a lot death spirally but they're they're trying something that is totally outside of every part of the dynamic of the player's handbook characters right right but you know but there's all, they're also doing things like as a 21st level priest you can call up an army of dedicated followers to accomplish a task yeah so you know the the idea of you know well their eminence reduces as time goes on you have to limit <laughs> something right you have to limit yeah. something so that's that's how they limited that yeah oh i'm not saying they should have done that yeah um it's it's an interesting enough mechanic sure um it's just i mean this is this is very different stuff and it it is uh it's all opt in because you have mm-hmm. to spend purchase it right. if if to spend slots to get this stuff or or character points either one so here's the thing. So it presents all of these new, awesome, different opportunities, more of the same for some of the classes. But, but the thing is, and, 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 and so I guess when I say more of the same, I mean more, more type of things like what we saw in combat and tactics, right? Where you're now suddenly you're a fighter. You can do more than just swing your sword a couple of times per turn. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so here's what happened, right? People who were playing fighters who were used to being, uh, overshadowed or or outshadowed, maybe is a better way to say it, by the wizard casting fireball, is now able to do some amazing feats and activities. Yep. You know, feats of strength and feats of you know just amazing moves and really awesome things, and they get to shine right. And suddenly, it's like, hey, well, at the higher levels, my fighter. Because we have this, you know, linear fighter quadratic wizard problem, my fighter now can kick some ass. Still, he they can really, 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 really do something awesome, just as awesome maybe as that fireball that's about to be cast. <sighs> and I, I really like that. No, no, listen, listen. Here's my train of thought. And I really like that as a player of a fighter. I want to be able to do that all the time. So by the time, by the time the the people are making third edition, they realize, hey, look, at the table, when the fighters had opportunities to take these feats, to get these new special powers, to do these things that kept them more in line with doing something great like a wizard can do all the time, they really liked it. Let's build that into the game from the lower levels, not just 15th, 20th, 21st. Oh, for sure. Let's talk about lower levels. For sure. So it makes it makes complete sense. I'm trying to support your thesis uh, no, here. No, no, my 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 skepticism, <laughs> my note of skepticism is not um that they were trying. I, I think that the mark might not have been hit for being as awesome as what a wizard is doing with their sure. high level spells. Yeah. But in comparison to just swinging a sword. Oh yeah. Oh, it, yeah. it was a lot more awesome. It it definitely is that um, I mean, fighters have breach immunity and intimidation in addition to whatever uh, skills they decide to pick up. Um, right. And then rangers and paladins pick up scroll use, scroll writing. Paladins finally become uh, immune to all diseases and not just non-magical diseases at 27th level. And, and so on throughout, throughout all the classes. Um we get descriptions of all the different skills, and that's all to the good. Also, can we talk about the awesome art on page 177 real quick? <laughs> sure, sure. But I do want to say real fast before I skip over there that All Around Attack is just the second ed name for Whirlwind Attack. <laughs> right. That's what's happening. There are so many things. I mean, we could go through this book, and we could pick out almost everything that's in this book we can tell you the name of it in third edition or, or fourth right. edition or fifth edition. I mean, it's just, it's that clear. Okay. Yes. The art on page 177 is extremely <laughs> Isn't that good. Amazing? It's very fun. 
<laughs> it's uh, it's a it's a, a large house cat. Basically, I'm sure it's supposed to be a giant panther uh, attacking and pushing back a siege machine that is the size of a juggernaut and has a battering ram on the front of it. And behind them all is a you know a castle fortification of some sort. Uh, and so there, <laughs> but the, but the colors in the image, it's not like bright fun colors it's like this cat is a shadow demon cat uh and it's attacking uh but however it's defending the castle so i but it's a great it's a great piece of art i just love it the cat is made out of stars and that's awesome. yes it is awesome and there's lightning crackling around it yes it's great it's totally great i love it and it looks like a house cat but i know it's not a, it's not meant to be a house cat it looks like a house cat it's great it's great because i pre- i prefer to think of it as a house cat this is a house cat <laughs> Attacking a juggernaut. It's great. Well, so so this is another example of how much of the art emphasizes uh, castle sieges. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a really really big thing. Yeah. In the second ed artwork. Yeah. And I, I think that it's not a coincidence. I think they actually had in mind that a lot of campaigns would be, you know, wars of conquest or defense against conquest. Right. Um, the second at DMG will back me up on this with its uh, sort of bizarre and wonderful several pages on <laughs> uh, historical uh, unit armament. Mm-hmm. Like, right. I, I've talked about it before, but it's just this wonderful digression in the second at DMG. Anyway, um, so so right, uh, you go through all of the different classes with all the different stuff they get, and then we get to. Uh, just, just the absolute kick in the pants of a section. Uh, the demi human problem. Demi humans in yeah. high level play. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there's there's a couple of different bullet points of solutions on how you can continue to have fun with your demi human character, but let's keep in mind that if you if your campaign is playing to this level. The game never wanted you to be playing mm-hmm. a non-human character, aside from maybe a half-elf bard, right. or I think a halfling thief. Very few uh, non-human races have unlimited progression in anything, um, and so they they recommend using wishes to become human. Excuse me. Yeah. Right. I mean, but they're also pretty strong-armed about this. I mean, let me read this to the audience. It's so rude. Right. It says, it says many DMs. So here's the, the name of the section is Demi Humans in High Level Play. It says many DMs. There's some front matter. But then it says many DMs are tempted to ignore Demi Human advancement limits. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Uh, and this is especially when characters are unwilling to retire their high level. Okay. So then it says, do not ignore Demi Human advancement limits. They are the price players must pay for gaining demi-human advantages at lower levels. Ignoring the advancement limits unbalances play by placing high-level power in the hands of characters who already have extra abilities, and it is grossly unfair to players who have chosen human characters and who have labored long and hard to get to the point where their choices begin to pay dividends. That little spot is in italics, where their choices begin to pay dividends in the form of unlimited advancement. So basically, Demi-Humans got a special little, you know, couple of, you know, advantages at the beginning, so they should suck forever. Yes. After tw- after fifteenth level, right, or after they hit their limit, um, or use a wish to become human. I hate this section so much. It's so bad. It says such a. It says a, a demi human character can use a wish or a tenth level transformation spell to become human. Such a character might still look and act like a demi human, but has put aside the racial characteristics and special racial abilities. That have held the character back uh, because a dwarf's stone sense really holds him back. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was such an advantage. It sure, I'm glad I had to stop, yeah. stop advancing as a fighter all those <laughs> levels ago, you jerk. Oh, man. Yeah, this is so bad. So, so bad. Uh, a demi-human character can use a wish or a 10th level imbue spell 
to gain one level beyond the normal racial maximum. Each level gained beyond the uh, maximum requires one wish or 10th level imbue spell. Cool. And you must have earned enough experience to actually gain the level also. Sure. Well, yeah, well <laughs> I, took that, I took that for granted. So here's the wish. Gee, I wish all that experience I just earned counted. Right. And I mean, like that's, it's just it's so far away from something the characters could meaningfully talk about in play. Like none of it is stuff yeah. characters have terminology to discuss in right. almost any campaign setting. That character is not going to say, hey, I wish my experience points earned actually counted. Right. They can't say that. They're not going to create a wish that way. Right. At least not in the games the way I run them. And then the DM can use the slow advancement rule. Uh, <laughs> if, like having to earn that much more XP when you get to the truly vast XP totals of late uh, late game second ed. Mm-hmm. No, it's cool. I now want to use my time and energy to get the rest of you to stop playing because yeah. this is terrible for me now. <laughs> uh, the DM can apply the slow advancement rule only after demi-human characters reach their maximum levels. Um, uh, uh, wait, 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 wait. Ye- Why is this a separate bullet from the option before? Because uh, they needed to fill that little spot in the book. <laughs> but, but, oh. Look, even the rogue who advances quicker than most other classes, they still need 2.2 million experience points yeah. to get to 20th level. Okay. By the time you're talking 30th level, you're talking about 4 million experience points. Basically what you're saying when you say you want them to use the slow advancement is horrific. You're talking about something horrific. I mean, I just, yeah, it's just not, it's just not tenable. It's not a tenable choice. Anyway, guys. So anyway. Th- the next section is beyond 30th level. And this makes me happy because it is, a, a straight-up Beck-Me callback. Yeah, yeah. This is your ascension into godhood. And it's also your your nod forward to both the Epic Level Handbook and your Epic Destinies. Right. 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 This is this is the, the connective tissue of second, second edition for the serious Epic Level stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's also uh, our last really salient page of the book. It is. Let's give it a minute. Let's talk about it. Let's go deep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure there's, there's. Uh, I mean, uh, I like it because I'm a big Beck Me fan. I mean, Beck Me is my favorite, you know, it's my favorite edition. Yeah. Um, it had, it had much more uh, meaty issues to deal with uh, in, in Beck Me to get, to get to your advancement, your ascension to immortality. Um, but just because of the, you know, Beck Me, the assumed world was Mistara, and Mistara did not technically have gods. They had immortals, uh, which were people that had, you know, left the mortal plane and become what amounts to gods, but they're not called gods. They're immortals because there's some differences. Uh, but it took a lot to get that status, <laughs> you know? Yep. Um, I mean, it was, yeah. So what is the highest level Beck Me campaign that you've been involved in? 36. Nice, nice. Yeah. I like to see that kind of commitment. <laughs> well, there were lots of starts and stops and a lot of death. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> but that's how it worked back then, though, you know? Oh, oh, for sure. It's just I've been uh, playing and running D and D of every edition, starting with second. Mm-hmm. Um, and the highest level character, I, other than a twentieth level one shot character, uh, the highest level character I've ever played or GM'd for was, I think, fifteen. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, if I'm if I'm if I truly do the timeline for the that Beck Me campaign, you know, there were levels that we basically hand waved, right? We we did a lot of siege warfare type stuff there in the middle levels and completely fudged XP values, and I'm sure didn't run it exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I wouldn't say it took us thirty years to get through that entire long campaign, but it took a long time of pretty constant play, almost every single day in some cases. I mean, yeah, I was really young, so. Hey. Um. Yeah, but I've run. Uh, so I've run first edition up to about tenth level. I've run uh, second edition up to about 
oh, seventh or eighth, maybe. Third edition, I've only run a two or three one-shots. I played more. Th- third edition is the only edition I've played more than I've run. Uh, fourth edition, I ran a first to 22nd level. I never got to 30th level there. Uh, and fifth edition, right now, the highest, the highest, uh, my players got to 12th level in my last group. In my current group right now, they're at 7th level. So Let's see. So in in 2nd ed, the highest level game I ever ran got to 9th. I had two different campaigns that ended at 9th level. Um, and I felt honestly pretty good about having gotten that far. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In 3rd, I had a game that went from 1st uh, level to... Either fourteenth or fifteenth, I don't remember which. And also separately, I played in an Arcana Evolved game where uh, my wife and I had to bow out of the campaign at either fourteenth or fifteenth level, depending on whether you count our plus one ECL that we received in the course of the campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, then um, in fourth edition, I had a campaign that ran first to fourth. And then we rebooted with some of the same players, but mostly not the same players, and totally new characters. Started at 4th, and mm. that campaign ran to 14th, which is a number that seems to come up a lot. Yeah. Then my current 5th ed game, uh, we started at 1st level in 2012, and the highest level character is ninth level. Nice. Uh, most of the players have multiple characters. So that's the thing. Oh, right, right. That's the one. So sometimes you're running a different level session because the players right. have multiple characters. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's it's very, very troop style in, in its whole format. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the neat thing about it. It's just that I only get to run the game about once a month. Yeah. So, you know. Uh, so anyway, that brings us, and I honestly can't believe I'm saying this, that brings us to the end of the player's option and DM's option 12 days of Christmas series. Yes, it does. It's been quite a run uh, for for this series. Grueling and rigorous. And, and you know, some parts <laughs> of it weren't always the most entertaining to to try to explain because some of the text is a little dry. It's a little dry. <laughs> you know, I... Um... The thing is, I, what I and the reason, the whole reason I'm doing this podcast is because I love to just look at the nitty gritty of what did these designers do in this game, and how did we play this game, and how does it relate to what was created later, and where where are they pulling things in from, and where are they sending things out? You know, what other games were created with these concepts in mind, but a different, you know a different utilization of that concept. I love talking about that kind of stuff. I just love it. It's fascinating to me. And, you know, I am not a prolific designer. I'm a prolific blogger and talker and reader. And I, you know, like I, my, Mike Shea loves to make fun of me because when I read like a hardback adventure, I read the whole thing front to back, cover to cover. And, um, I, and I just, I just soak that stuff in and I love it. Uh, and then when I write a review, it's it's usually really detailed and and really like I will talk about. Well, on this page it says this, and then that's confusing. Or I'll say, you know, yeah, I know I could change this thing, but the book says this. So why do I have to change it if the book expects me to do it this way? Like I love talking about that stuff, and I love pointing those things out. And I don't do a ton of design. I do a little bit of design. I do design all day long in my games, but in terms of things that I produce and put out there for other people to use, I don't do a lot of design that way, but I love evaluating this stuff. And that's why I like making this podcast because I think you're a little bit the same way, Other, although the difference is you do design a lot of stuff to put out there for people, but I think you love talking about it just as much as I do. I absolutely do. I love talking about this kind of content. I love talking about the history of uh, how each thing was designed and why someone designed it this way rather than another way. Um, I think that for all that I'm criticizing the designs that people chose in a lot of these cases, uh, 
it's important to keep in mind, first of all, that I recognize them as you know, kindred souls, as game designers who are doing the best they can at the time. No one ever deliberately does a bad job. That's not a thing. And mm-hmm. um, that really is something that needs a lot of empathy in reading. And that need for empathy interests me to talk about. And so I, I like doing design analysis and critique and uh, I, I hope that the things I have to say never come across as uh, callous or I know I come across as dismissive sometimes and I hate that. It It is, it is exactly what I want <laughs> not to do, but it is so hard to avoid. Right, right. Well, on that note, I think we can round up this episode and you can tell us where people can find you on the internet. Uh, I write my own blog, uh, www.brendastoddard.com. I also write for tribality.com. You can find me on Twitter, uh, famously the bad site or whatever, uh, <laughs> at Brenda Stoddard. And I'm also on Patreon. I am Brenda Stoddard there. If you want to uh, come by and kick me a few bucks, I certainly won't say no. And I hope that you've all enjoyed this long, strange idea that. I pretty much got from Jared Rasher. It's pretty much his fault. <laughs> oh, so now everyone knows who to blame. <laughs> uh, look, I, I think uh, – uh, so look, I played Earth Dawn, and in Earth Dawn, there's a skill called Slough Blame, and I bought that skill by God <laughs> in my real life. I slough this blame. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those of you who want to uh, send a, a, a word to Jared Rasher, his his Twitter is <laughs> at Knight Errant <laughs> underscore JR. Uh, oh, that's just mean. <laughs> uh, uh, Jared deserves nothing but uh, or, no, nothing uh, praise. But he is he's a wonderful, wonderful creative person who has written me many kind reviews. He can have all the praise for for kicking this kicking this series into motion. <laughs> Anyway, I am at DM Samuel on Twitter, and you can find me at RPGmusings.com. And if you want to email us, you can email us at D-N-D-E-B-R-I-E-F. That's dndbrief at gmail.com. And we would love to hear your comments and your uh, screeching howls at how long this series was uh, or your suggestions for series for next year's 12 Days of Christmas. And on that note, we'll say goodbye. Look, mate, three generations ago, my ancestors forged the Great Blade Skull Splitter. With it, they won the Goblin Wars, the Hobgoblin Wars, the Orc Wars, the Demon Wars, the Elf Wars, and the Gelatinous Cube Wars. And that one doesn't even make sense, because they don't have skulls. Now, all these years later, the legend of the Great Skull Splitter grows. Offering dice to help you create your own legends, Skull Splitter Dice makes the highest quality dice beautiful dice of both plastic and metal. Want to roll bones that look like bones? Or just something with enough heft to split the skulls of your enemies? Skull Splitter Dice has that and more. Check them out now at SkullSplitterDice.com slash Tomeshow and use the coupon code Tomeshow with all little letters and get 15% off. Now get out there, split some skulls, and build some legends.